What a lovely big crowd. And everybody looking, please, come and sit, dear. Come and sit. Um, welcome to everybody. I'm sure that um, uh, most of you uh, know the situation here. We do um, four major projects a year. Uh, this is the fourth and final one. And uh, together with the projects, we do what we call a culture and idea series. And what you're about to experience uh, forms part of the culture and idea series, which is um, supported by the Nelson Mears Foundation. So uh, I'm absolutely delighted to see you. Uh, I've just come back from overseas yesterday. And... Um, I'm sort of in, in a bit of culture shock at the moment. I've been in the Middle East and in London, uh, in Israel specifically and in Hong Kong. And you know how you drop from one culture to the next? And I'm feeling a bit disoriented. But I came into the show um, with which we've been working for a year and a half now, almost two years, uh, to find that it is really one of the most beautiful shows that I feel we've ever mounted at the gallery. And that's saying a huge amount because uh, this is our 30th year in the gallery, 30th anniversary year, and it is our 33rd SCAF project. Um, so we started um, nine years ago with the Not-for-Profit Foundation, and this is project 33. So uh, to, I'm not going to uh, talk for longer than another minute because there is an opening and we'll uh, introduce the speakers and so on uh, fulsomely during the opening. But just to let you know, Mark Fury, uh, who some of you will know from <coughs> the Australian Centre for Photography and earlier uh, than that from Artspace and now Artistic Director of Gertrude Street in Melbourne, uh, Mark, we, for the Collection Plus shows, which I'll describe in a minute, we ask an external uh, curator to come in. Normally the shows are curated from here, but for this particular series, somebody is invited from outside. Greg Semu is, of course, the star of the moment. I don't know how many of you saw <laughs> that lovely article uh, in the Sydney Morning Herald yesterday. I think it was a very accurate article. The only uh, mistake... Uh, that was made is that there was Greg Semu and then Greg Fury. Well, it's Mark Fury, and I'm paying tribute to Mark here to make sure that he's not, um, he's worked closely with Greg, but he's his own person. <laughs> so, uh, just a, a last word on the Collection Plus series. This is our sixth and final one. Um, SCAF was set up in order to. Um, promote artists from the Asia-Pacific and Australia uh, via newly commissioned work. So 90% of our projects uh, comprise work that has not existed before. And we give uh, the artist or architect, designer, fashion designer, because we cover uh, visual practice in general, we give them 100,000 Australian dollars just for the project. And, and it sounds an awful lot. It is an awful lot because... If uh, an artist does uh, work in a museum show, a newly commissioned work, they don't usually get quite as much as that. And if they're doing work in a solo exhibition in a museum, uh, you know, you have this level of budget. But this gives them the chance to realise their dreams. So that was how SCAF was set up. But people kept asking me, uh, when can we see uh, your collection or parts of your collection? And they, we do open our home, uh, you know, from time to time, but we can't have people in and out all the time looking at the collection because it's a home, uh, not a gallery. And uh, we've got a home in the country as well, um, but we really like to be very private there. So there wasn't an opportunity for many people to see uh, works from our collections. So um, we devised this Collection Plus a show in order to respond to that request. And how it works is we appoint an external curator, which is uh, what I said a few minutes ago. In this case, Mark, not Greg, but Mark Ferry, um, uh, selected work from our collection 
in the, and there is the work in there, which I'll refer to in the opening speech, and then looks at collections worldwide or countrywide in public or private museums or private collections or the artist studio and um, chooses work from other collections by the same artist. So you would ask the question then, what's the difference between that and a survey show? And my answer is a survey show would normally look at every period or at least a set number of periods, where in this case the periods don't matter. It's a question of which collections. Uh, so it's about the artist and the collector. And at this point, I'd like to introduce Mark and, of course, Greg, uh, you recognise, and um, I, they're going to have a conversation. And we'll give you a chance, if we've got time, to answer questions. Thanks so much, guys. Give them a clap. Um, a very, very handsome audience today um, with a great sense to come along to uh, a very handsome artist speak uh, hopefully quite candidly about his work. I'd just like to begin by acknowledging any Samoan people that we have in the audience as well as people from the Pacific and uh, of course Aboriginal people as well. So this will be a, a fairly um, free-form discussion, the Greg and Mark show for Saturday afternoon and um, I'm going to ask a couple of sort of leading questions and just get Greg to sort of unravel a little bit about um, his practice more broadly and, and more specifically about this um, particular exhibition. I'd also like to, um, before I proceed, to um, of course acknowledge what a great pleasure it has been to work with Greg and of course the, the, um, with great gratitude to work with Jean Sherman and her wonderful team here at SCAF and in particular Emily. Michael, Hannah, Danielle, Sophie, Rebecca, and of course the additional installation team, Jack and um, Grant. Probably forgotten somebody, but anyway. Um, so I guess, um, you know, I, I will start, um, Greg, by just um, asking you a little bit, and I'll, I'll say this in reference to a comment that um, the, um, I'm not sure if I should say this, but I'll say it anyway. Anyway, the installation photographer was in here yesterday and was like, I think Greg is the sexiest man in Australian art. <laughs> so I guess as, using that as a, as a, as a starting point, um, I guess, um, and what great sense she has as well. But um, I guess, you know, I, I've never really worked with an artist who is, um, his, who is whose physicality is so present within their own work and I, I, I guess I just wanted to ask you what, what, it, what it's like for you to um, walk into a room like that where you're sort of so ill-clad and uh, I wonder whether that's a, a, there's sort of a moment or kind of a Bean John Malkovich moment when you walk into an exhibition like this. Mark Fieri, curator. <laughs> is the real hero of this show. Before we start, I also would like to acknowledge um, SCAF, Sherman Contemporary Art Foundation, for supporting us and giving us this platform. And I also like to acknowledge our traditional landowners, the Gadokal mob of the Euro Nation, myself being Samoan, New Zealand, as a visit to this country. I'm very privileged and happy to be here. John Malkovich. <laughs> there was a moment when he was a great actor and he still is a great actor, but you know, unfortunately, lifespans are few and far apart. Uh, there was actually a moment um, I was thinking like, wow, this exhibition spans 20 years. I spent 20 years photographing myself. Uh, to, if, if you didn't know who I was or if you didn't know my work, um, what I'd like to say is that this is a snapshot of this moment now and it's a collaborative effort. So uh, the real hero here is the curator followed by the institution that's supporting it, and then the artist, in my opinion. So I'm just the vehicle. Um, but we're being guided and driven by our curator and by SCAF Foundations for their, for their own agenda that they have as well. Um, but what I was going to say is like, um, yeah, I was like, wow, I just photographed myself for 20 years. So. <laughs> um, but again, it was what was available. It was a snapshot of whose collections and what's been, and it's an interesting, we have to look at the collector. So this show is not just about my uh, artistic practice, but it's also about the collector and what they look for. Um, and what they deem to be collectible. But in Australia, it's very interesting because it, it's, you know, finances is really important here. So we would question some of the collectors, whether it's like collecting um, shares or something, is it a 
financially viable? Is it going to be profitable? Versus the collector who collects art because they love it. So it's, it's an interesting one. A lot of these works have come from institutions. So uh, it's not based on financial gain, but based on, um, on the importance of art as it's being evolved and being uh, articulated at the time. I mean, that's a, an interesting point that you note about um, of, of, of yourself being the most available thing at a time. And I think, looking back, and I'm not sure whether um, all of you are aware, but Greg has literally lived the world over. He spent significant periods of time in Paris, um, was raised um, in, in New Zealand, has also spent time, significant periods of time in Berlin and New York. Um, you know, many artists travel um, a lot for their work, and their work um, changes course. It's, it's driven by research that they do in other places. When I look at your work, Greg, I, I think it's actually even in spite of or maybe because of all of these travels that your work ha actually has become more um, internally or, or, or self-referential. Can you maybe speak a little bit about, you know, the, the impact that travels had on your work and how that's um, led to the kind of work that you create, uh, create rather? Mm, yes. Uh, <laughs> storytelling. So what I found is um, through my travels, I lived in Paris and New York and London um, for many a year. Um, I found that storytelling is quite universal. So, and the reason I'm kind of present in my own work is because I'm an initiated Samoan male and I carry a tattoo that's three to 5,000 years old. What that means is that this tattoo is, an, is a living icon. It has not changed or shift in its design or in its process and in, in its traditional making for three to 5,000 years old. So it's a, it's a statement and it's a, an affirmation of my existence. But at the same time, the tattoo is, um, it's, a, it's, it's a birthright of every male Samoan man who was born. Uh, whether or not they choose to take it up is entirely up to the individual. But uh, again, you know, coming back to storytelling, and I, I'm a big fan, I, at the moment I've come to this revelation, it's all about the hero's journey and its arc. So it's like, um, you know, I mean, I, I'm religious iconography and, you know, the Christian uh, rhetoric and dogma and dialogue is quite um, strong and prevalent in my work because I was exposed and, and, you know, it's part of my upbringing. So I'm very familiar with the um, storytelling here. So there's no greater hero's journey arc than the story of Christ as an example. So he's, you know, and, and the, the hero's journey is that we go through pain and misery and trials of life and, you know, near-death experiences to find that revelation. So I, I try and see this here and I'm trying to, you know, like a lot of my work, which is not so evident here in this exhibition, is that I'm community arts engaging. I work with community groups, uh, indigenous and ethnic minority groups, and it's about telling their stories. But what I've, through my observation is, you know, it's not so easy to enter these groups. Um, because, you know, they have several hundred years of um, pain and trauma. So it's like, you got the first half, now we need to get the second half of the hero's journey and we need to continue the arc until we become um, self-healed, the revelation of that. I didn't answer your question, did I? <laughs> I'm just going to ask weird questions and you can give other answers. <laughs> Um, but I, I will pick up on that, um, the, the religious, the very, very um, evident religious elements that kind of pervade this particular exhibition. Um, you know, to my understanding, you yourself aren't, don't consider yourself um, religious to any kind of um, significant degree. And I, I just, I guess I was going to ask, you know, um, you know, what is the role of God or what is the role of the church within your practice more broadly? Yeah, um... What I found is like the question of exclusivity. So every religious practice claims exclusivity. And exclusivity is what creates division. So it's like, and they all have the same story or has a very similar format of the story, the hero's journey. Once again, you need to go through life, which is a traumatizing event. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's an interesting one. You know, I don't discredit any religion. Uh, in fact, I support all of them. What I don't support, you know, it's just clearly obvious, is that, you know, um, the extremes that people will go to, you know, in the name of their religious practice or even political practice. 
So it's a very sensitive subject matter, and it's one that, I, you know, um, as I was saying, uh, recently has kind of evolved into me. And now the story, it, for me, it's like the story of Christianity is like doing Shakespeare, Romeo and Juliet. It's, I'm just reinterpreting these, these standard stories. But by putting my tattoo into it, I've turned it into my tattoo, into my version or my representation of a very standard generic, generic story. Um, and that's what I try to look for. I think I try to, I, I am deliberately being provocative, subversive, you could say. But it's, I'm, I'm interested in the conversation. You know, I'm interested in evolving it. And, you know, how do we get to the next stage? We've been saying the same rhetoric for a very long time. But I think we don't actually, it's, it's automatic. And it's like, well, let's, let's revisit the script again. Mm. And let's, 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 let's reevaluate and let's look at the words again and, and the context. And then, you know, let's, um, let's just keep repeating it until we actually get an evolution of some sort, you know? Um, yeah. It's, but it's, it's my understanding, though, that the, um, you know, the, and the, the, the missionaries were very pervasive ac across the Pacific, um, that there was almost kind of a, um, um, a subverting of the cultural traditions, obviously, of Samoa and other Pacific nations, but that it was almost frowned upon to to um, to undertake the the traditional tattooing techniques as well. So, is, it, is there something that is there? So, the religiosity and the kind of eroticism um, within within this particular exhibition is there kind of quite a conflict about how those two kind of realms operate. I was thinking about that today, you know, <laughs> prior to this conversation. So, I mean, yes, so the Samoan tattoo is a cultural icon that it's several thousand years old. Um, and it, it, it actually, it stands in the way of Christian domination or other religious domination. So by discrediting it and discontinuing it, then you will actually have a, a clear path to domination. So. So yeah, it, it does. There is a conflict of interest here. The, if we embrace this, this tattooing tradition, um, there's well, I mean, you know, no, no man can serve two masters. Is the way you know. So I'm very familiar with this. So you have to choose one or the other. But I think, why do we have to choose? But I think in Samoa, in particular, it's really embraced Christianity and its morals that it provides, and um, you know, and it's, I think there's been a hybrid or augmentation. Um, so, I mean, culturally, a man, you know, like tr prior to pre-colonial contact, um, the Samoan tattoo was a rank of honor. It signified your position in society that was recognized like, like being in an army of some sort, you know. Um, so when Christianity came to the Pacific, this had to go. So, I mean, today, even Christian, Christianity and other religious denominations are very strong and, and healthy and embraced in the Pacific. And, um, but at the same time, the Samoan tattooing is a threat. So um, there are people, I mean, it's kind of gone underground. Um, culturally, it's still recognized as a, as a very significant symbol. Um, and I, I don't think it's been, you know, I, don't, I think the resistance is not really there. It's, it's augmented. It's very hard to describe this. It's, um, yeah, religion and politics are a very difficult conversation to have, but if for some reason it comes through my art practice. And I think, you know, art is a great medium to have these conversations um, and to try and change the rhetoric, or not change it, but evolve it, shift it, um, bake it, cook it, fry <laughs> it. <laughs> you know, put some seasoning on it or something. I don't know. It's, it's just, yeah. So when um, I'm, I'm kind of, in, and we haven't spoken about this before, but um, you know, obviously um, your presence within your works is is, is self-evident. But I also wonder why, in many of these works, where um, you actually kind of cut off your head in many of those images, and this, this happens in a number of the works across this exhibition. Mm. Uh, again, it's, it's trying to take it away from being personal to me and making it more generic. So it's quite funny with my printers over the years that when I actually meet them, they're like, they're, we wondered what you looked like. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen your body, like, uh, but we never actually, the mystery of it, you know, it's like, um, but again, I deliberately do that because it's meant to be um, auto-documentive. So as I was saying that the Samoan tattoo is, uh, is a birthright of all, all males. So it's inclusive as opposed to being exclusive. By putting my face with it, I, I make it um, inclusive or I, I personalize it to one individual. 
So by um, removing my identity, I, I make it as being more universal and more inclusive, and that it's, uh, it's the story I'm trying to tell uh, and trying to reach an audience if they can resonate with me, you know, it's like, I'm pretty sure a lot of people cannot resonate with me if they saw my face, you know. <laughs> but yeah, it's about um, making that story or, or getting my message across to a broader audience by by ge generalizing it in a strange yeah. way, decapitating. But uh, it makes a lot of sense, um, you know. It's like front, back, and center. It's it's very documented, very scientific approach to it. Um, there's a black and white series in there, uh, which is which is the very first work of mine that was purchased and acquisitioned by an institution. So that's 20 years ago, uh, Auckland Art Gallery, curator Ron Brownson. And then there's a color version of it, which I revisited 17 years later. So once again, it was the courtesy of Auckland Art Gallery and, and our curator Ron Brownson. He wanted to continue this dialogue and this conversation. So is that the question you asked? <laughs> It's one of the answers. <laughs> All of them are right. Um, yeah, and it's, I mean, more broadly about seeing an exhibition like this, and, and as Jean notes, it's not a, 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 a typical kind of surveyic model, but it, is, it does bring together a number of works spanning back over the last 20 years. Like, is it quite, um, is it quite unusual in some ways for you to kind of look back on, on what your life has been over the last 20 years and to look at the kind of the cultural production that you've been um, kind of developing and fostering over this time and to look at those sort of shifts and changes. And, and again, and I think this is what this exhibition shows, is those um, commonalities that go through those past decades. Mm. Actually, I think to an artist, the word survey show or a retrospective is, is a bad word because it, it kind of signifies that it's the end of your career. So, so we tend to not say that. But um, I mean, this is the third solo show of this year that I've had. Um, and two of them, this one and one at Cairns Regional Gallery, they're both survey shows in a strange way. Um, but once again, I would, I would emphasize it's a snapshot of, of a combination of a whole lot of paths coming together, what was available, who had what. Um, so, you know, so this show particularly is very interesting. As I was saying, it's, it's difficult because I'm like, all I see is that I photographed myself for 20 years. But it's like, apart from that, um, the Ken's Regional Gallery show was um, a much more diverse and, and a very different uh, curated group of works and you know there was hundreds of people in the photo shoots so I, I kind of like I prefer to look forward and not backwards um, I, I think I've made a lot of progress from I mean from the first photos I showed you the black and white auto portraits um, front back and side decapitated heads versus the 17 year color versions there's like I mean if you were photographic you would look at the works and you can see okay uh, we've shifted from uh, argentic black and white so I was saying there's a, there's a trace, you know, there's like do we do detective work. So we've gone from black and white, traditional chemical processing, film practices to digital capture. And it's like I shifted from black and white to color because all cameras are digital or color. Um, doesn't make any sense to turn them black and white in my mind because um, whereas prior to that, um, black and white cameras, you had to choose the film. It's like, well, do I choose black and white or do I choose color? I chose black and white for many years because I processed it myself. It was cheaper. Uh, I was, you know, I was quite, I'm very frugal when it comes to shooting. Uh, for many years, I worked with a lot of collectives, a lot of um, street collectives and artisans, um, fashion designers, performers, actors, dancers, um, filmmakers, directors, and none of us had any money. And I mean, that's, this model will never go away, you know? And so we collaborated and we worked together. And, and again, so, so I have one, I have a, a roll of film. There's 24 frames or 36 frames on it. I've got two shoots to do. It's like, you can have 10 shots and I'll have 10 over here, you know? And it was, it's like very frugal and very prude. I kind of kicked myself about it, but that was the necessity of finances and staying within your budget. And I guess it really trained your eye too. It's like, I don't shoot until I know it's something worth shooting. Whereas today with digital technology, it's like people are like, it's like having a machine gun yeah. or a shotgun blast. And it's like, you just shoot the sh 
and hope you get something, you know? And then you do the edit after. Whereas uh, I would say, like, in terms of army te terminology, I'm a sniper, you know? And as I, I... And there's the sharp... We're done. But, I mean, again, I mean, I mean, this is technology influencing techniques, and neither one of them are better or worse than each other. They're all valid and valuable. I think in a situation of documentation and photojournalism, you would use a shotgun or you'd use a machine gun because the environment is so volatile. Um, there's too much to shoot, you know, and to get that magic moment. Whereas with the work that I'm making, call it fabricated realities, uh, we... You know, as a collective, once again, as a collective, I'm working with stylists and performers and dancers, wardrobe, arts department, hair and makeup's really important now. It's a new thing for me. Um, and, uh, and it's like, you know, it's like uh, we have a very limited budget. We have one day to get something. And so it's, it's very articulated. It's a great way to work. I think it's very process. Um, and I think, you know, at the end of the day, you need to guarantee your product. So that's not what you asked, right? That's <laughs> It's, it's like what I asked, but I, I will I will come back to this. Um, and you know, I was very careful not to 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 say um, retrospective because I agree. I think that sort of signifies the end of somebody's um, career or end of life in, in many respects. But I will I will kind of reference again back to this exhibition that, with reference to that, you actually do start uh, with the first two works within the exhibition, um, the work from two thousand and four, where you. Uh, um, which I seem to be you on the crucifix, mm -hmm. yeah, and then the the wonderful new com commission, uh, new um, work that you've produced to, um, I guess, bookend this this um, period in your life or this period of your practice. And I, I was wondering if you could speak a bit more um, specifically to to what the impulse were, was towards the generation of this uh, crypt type work that you've seen as as you enter the space. It's, it's the one with the big black box. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just... With mean, reference to kind of the death of the artist in some respects. <laughs> the resurrection. Um, yeah, I, 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 again, you know, as I was saying, thematically, this is, you know, the, the story of... The, the Bible stories, uh, New Testament particularly, and Old Testament. The, uh, again, for me, it's like Shakespeare. So I keep visiting this subject matter, and it's not because, I mean... There is, I do have some residue, without a doubt. Um, I still have a lot of issues with, but you know, the, the story has issues and has residue, so it's like science. Um, and it was really nice, actually, you know, I have to thank you, Mark Fieri, curator, for giving me that opportunity to make a new work because it doesn't fit the format of the Collection Plus. But, um, you know, through a discussion with you, we talked about how I've had this obsession for the last 20 years and I've done all the stages, you know, I did the Last Supper, I've done the La Pieta, but I've never done the Death of Christ as far as that tomb work goes. So you know, if out of this conversation we had, it made a lot of sense that we kind of wrap it up very nice and neatly and use this opportunity to, to um, finish this theme like a grand finale in a strange way but in a strange way there's still a, there's the resurrection so it's, <laughs> so it's like the prequel sequel or something <laughs> so let's not talk, let's not put well, an speaking end speaking of uh, I guess resurrection or new beginnings <laughs> let's say but um isn't that like the hero's journey, though? You know, it's like it's an archetype, and and again, it's like the story where we, you might die along the way, but you get to live again or something. I don't know, man. It's very interesting. That sounds positive. <laughs> Good. Um, but I will say, you know, like noting that you've you have lived all over the world, and and I, mm -hmm. I think I recall you mentioning that you've never actually had a a, a proper studio. No. And. Um, you know, as you mentioned before, that artists many, in many respects are always thinking forward. They're always thinking about the next project that they're working on rather than reflecting on the work that they've been making. So I know that you are, um, currently have a studio with the um, uh, Waverley, Waverley City Council. And I just wanted to ask, maybe in conclusion, before we open it up to questions from the audience, you know, how you think, how you might anticipate that this might shift your practice over the next period. Well, courtesy of Elizabeth Reedy, who's just over there at the back row <laughs> with the red hair. She's been absolutely supportive, and it's a great initiative put on by um, Waverley Council. Uh, so it's basically um, five studios. They're very small, basic studios, but nonetheless, it's an opportunity where they make it available free to to five artists. But, of course, there's a, um, a vetting process, and it's, um, you need to apply for it. 
But um, I mean, finally, like uh, in 2014, 2015, I was the Creative New Zealand Visual Arts Artist in Residence Berlin. And that was the first time where I actually had a studio provide completely, and this one was well advanced, fully equipped. But I wasn't prepared, I had no idea. So what I'm trying to say is I'm autodidact, I'm self-taught in my profession as an artist photographer. Uh, and, you know, I, I actually don't see photography as being an art practice because it's, it's more of a, it's like being a tradie, if you ask me. You know, you got your tools and lights and cameras and what do we need to achieve here? And it's like, well, we need to do this and that and get over there. And it's like, okay, so for me, it's very practical, methodical. Uh, whereas with art, it's very ambiguous. It's like, oh, I need to feel some inspiration from somewhere uh, over here, maybe. I don't know. I'm joking. But um, I'm not joking. <laughs> But um, so I, I think I kind of abused the time that I had in Berlin uh, as opposed as, as the reference to the studio. So what I'm trying to say is like now that I'm better prepared, I have a better understanding of the luxury it is to have a studio, a space that's separate from you. I would like to, um, being self-taught and not, not going to school or anything, I don't ha I'm lacking in a lot of discipline. So I'd like to approach this residency, this studio space and treat it like a business. Show up four or five days a week. <laughs> Put in a few hours work, you know. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. You know, I think as artists, we're, you know, we have this great excuse, oh, it's because you're an artist, you know, we're allowed to be ambiguous and, you know, um, unreliable. <laughs> not very dependent or, you know, um, but I think if you really want to have a career in the arts, you need to be more methodical or really apply yourself, maybe change your attitude towards it. So, yeah, no, I'm very grateful to have this studio and it's, uh, it's on Bondi Road. It's the Waverley Art School, just in Bondi. And it's, it's a pretty, you know, the, the space itself has a lot of historical residue. Um, it's community arts orientated, so there. I mean, but it's interesting. The the demographic is um, very extreme, as in really young, young um, ballerinas coming through, or something. I don't know. Is it really the passion of these young children, or is it a combination of their parents? But this is this is interesting. And then, in the other end of it, you have um, really uh, senior citizens who are semi-retired or retired, and they're doing art. You know, so it's a really nice uh, broad spectrum. Try, I'll try and fit in the middle somewhere and build some bridges. You know, um, but again, it's like uh, having the studio space, even though it's very small, very basic, but it's prime location. As a one of my op modus operandi is to make it available as a photographer. I'm collaborative. It's not. I mean. It's not always about me, you know. So, <laughs> so if you want really good photos, it's it's collaborative effort. I mean, if we don't have any budget, it's a photograph for me. So um, I would like to use this studio space as an opportunity to work with other artists. Um, Marina Debris, who we have over here, she was a previous resident. So we're looking to make some f f costume design. Trash fashion, but I don't want to use these words. But I think it's more of a, it's a political statement. But she designs um, costumes made from um, recycled or found objects on the beach, mostly trash. So again, it's a political message in that. And you know, uh, we will look at using. You know, again, this is a collaborative effort that's come through this residency. So it's, a, it's an opportunity to um, reach other people, meet other people, and um, I'd like to make it available to others as a space to convene, to chat, have a coffee, talk about art or politics. Or <laughs> well, that idea of collaboration might be a good segue into um, inviting questions from you beautiful people here if you have anything to, to ask of Greg. I think we can use this as a roaming mic, I guess. I'll start, Mark, just uh, because I want you to talk about the wallpaper. I don't want to forget that. So, um, as you can see, the gallery is... Oh, I'm not. I need the mic. I just want to fill in a gap here and talk about uh, the wallpaper. It's the first time we've ever papered the gallery. We've painted it. We've... Uh, clad it, we've created a movie theatre out of it, we've done all sorts of things, but we've never papered it in the way it's being papered now. So, Greg, will you talk a bit about, uh, or Mark, um, what that 
papering means and where it comes from? Well, I guess, <laughs> should I answer this question? Yes. Okay. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I would, I actually have to suggest that, that it is a pretty heavy-handed curatorial vehicle that we've produced here, but I still think that one that is very sympathetic um, to Craig's practice and, and presenting a body of work within some sort of form of consistency or framework of consistency. So I guess um, with reference to the, the wallpaper um, and re reference to the Collection Plus series of exhibitions, I wasn't purely interested in, in presenting a number of finalised outcomes of an artist's work that um, get dispersed amongst private and public collections um, around the world. I was, I was very much interested in... Um, the kinds of environments that these works may actually end up in, and many of these may be domestic, and I was thinking about what the, the process um, of, that an artist goes through, sort of an intellectual and, and creative process to generate their work. So I was, um, and this comes back to your story of creating narratives, but how we could not just present a kind of a, uh, an outcome of thinking, but also in some ways make allusions to um, a process of thinking. So. My idea was, and this came from seeing a number of, well, it was actually featured in the, the, um, the Kunstlerhaus Batanian catalogue that Greg produced from his residency there in 2014, 2015. And I noted on within that catalogue that there were a kind of a number of um, sketches and drawings and note makings that um, kind of informed the work that he developed while he was there. And I thought, um, this would be a really great thing, a wonderful thing to offer an audience to kind of see, uh, to gain even more insight into um, a creative process. So thinking about the ideas that Greg collects in the process towards making a work, and I guess I should also mention that we've, um, we've through the um, Museum of Applied Science, Arts and, Art, Arts and Science, the Powerhouse Museum, um, we have... Um, uh, borrowed from them a, re a number of reproductions of um, ethnogra eth ethnographic images um, from Samoa from the um, mid-19th century um, that um, sort of depict a, a number of kind of first contact um, moments between missionaries and, and merchants, um, European merchants and missionaries and Samoan people, many of them very staged, many of them representing... Um, the culture as, as they existed at that time. And I thought that would be an interesting, uh, another interesting allusion to the idea of the collections. And so I mean this through ethnographic collections and also for, for um, us as, as, as people interested in, in the present, but through the lens of history, how we've actually formed um, an image of these cultures over time. So I thought that was another additional layer that we could um, bring into this exhibition to kind of give it greater depth as a kind of a, um, um, a, a trajectory of, of Pacific nations over the last 150, 200 years. Yes, I mean, it was Mark Ferry curator the initiative. Um, but what I want to say is that I love the behind the scenes. You know, I, when you go and see a great show or a big survey show of any big time artist, they always show their diaries and their drawings. And I mean, let's take Leonardo da Vinci as an example. It's like he's famous for not finishing any works. But what we do have is his drawings. And I love those more than I love the finished products because it's like the moment of genius, that moment of clarity is captured in a squiggle. And it was an opportunity to share with our audience the, um, the thinking process or the working process behind a lot of the images. I mean, I wanted to say that I don't just take a camera and shoot away or shoot something. Um, it's very, there's a lot of thought goes in, a lot of pre-planning. And, um, and yeah, it looks like I'm in the clouds, but I'm really thinking hard about how it works. <laughs> and um, yeah, so the wallpaper was a wonderful um, an opportunity once again to, to give you a little bit more than just the photograph surface. You know, we try and get a bit deeper and give you a little bit of an insight of, of the creative process and behind a lot of these photographies. It's very difficult actually with these drawings because they don't n relate to, some, to most of the photographs in this current show because of um, time span. But nonetheless, it, it gives you an idea and, a, and you can see I'm, I'm really good at squiggling on, on the diaries. But I mean, they're also diary pages, so you see the dates. Uh, so, I mean, this is, again, part of my process is like, how do we create 
longevity as an artist and how do we create value in our work. And it's like dating the work gives it value in this instant nanoseconds, a very simple thing. Another thing with photography is like people don't buy it because they think, well, you can make 10, 100,000 by pushing a button, which is true. So we do editions, but I get upset about this because it's like, well, you know, you pay 20, 30, $40,000 for a painting that one person made. My photographs cost 30, $40,000 to stage. I mean, not, maybe that's not so evident in this work, but there is the Battle of the Noble Savage and there is the Last Cannibal Supper here. Both of them, are, the production value of them are in the thousands. I mean, they're like starting at 30,000. So of course we need to recuperate our cost of digressing. Digressing, but back to dates. So it's like by putting a date on anything, a squiggle, an artwork, you've impregnated it with a moment in history and it's now traceable. So this is the whole idea of drawing in my diaries. It gives you a reference point. So I'll just give you a bit of backstory on the Battle of the Noble Savage. It's a work commissioned for a French audience by Musée du Quai Bronly, and it's a battle scene of um, indigenous people fighting indigenous people. But it's not so evident. You see um, red coats, and then you see indigenous people. So, so what that is, it's a reference of colonial. It's a colonial battle. But anyway. Because uh, it was for a French audience and it had to relate to the New Zealand demographic. Um, what I, from my years of living in France, um, the, the French people, like, they understand Maori culture as in they do this funny dance when the All Blacks play. But in their minds, it's fiction, fictional. It's some kind of fantasy. So with this work that I made, I hijacked Napoleon Bonaparte of the horse rearing. And it's like, uh, I turned him black and gave him a tattoo and it's a black horse, not a white horse. So I reappropriated an image, a symbol, an icon that for French people, it's like blasphemy. But instantly, within an instant, I brought New Zealand, the Māori Wars, into reality for a French audience because they can now reference it to some historical event of their culture. So as what I was saying to them is that at the same time that Napoleon Bonaparte was in the Alps and he was raging war against the Russians and he, who, whoever he was, I'm very sorry, my science is not very good. Um, New Zealand was in deep battle with its indigenous people and with the English colonizers and, you know, and now they have a reference point. So again, this, this whole diary entry thing is about giving a reference point for our audience so we can do some science on it. So this is him at this age and whatever. But it's all like um, secreting evidence and some of it's fake. A lot of it is fake actually. But. <laughs> But, you know, I mean, again, it's another pro protest, as in, like, you know, like, uh, indigenous people are constantly being told by academics and science people that, oh, you are this and this and this, because we discovered it through our scientific process. So it's like they love our archival treasure hunts. So in my photography of the big productions, I hide all this archival evidence, and a lot of it's, like, uh, false hearing. But it's, it's fun, you know. Uh, it's fun. We like treasure hunts, you know. So... Um, was, there, was there a question? Maybe I actually mispackaged it, and it's like covert, overt, and it's a combination of both. So it's like um, if you're religious, then it's covert because it's offensive to whoever this, you know, of your religious beliefs. But if you're, if you're a tattoo collector, it's over because it's, it's recognized globally as the, as the ultimate icon of the tattoo um, in popular culture. So, and, and I think, you know, the reason these works speak really clearly and reach a broad audience is because it's authentic. There hasn't been diluted or polluted with popular culture by adding like an eagle or some broken heart on it or something, you know, which is which has come from sailors and stuff. So what we're saying, it's like, um, yeah, it's clean and it's it's very... Um, it depends on your political and your religious stance. So if, if you're, I mean, amongst my family, the tattoo is very hidden. And I mean, I did it for my own personal self, but yeah, it, it's, it is a political piece. And I didn't answer your question, did I? <laughs> I, I don't, yeah. Covert, overt. It's complex. <laughs> <laughs> and what about the whole 
Cutting your head and your, your legs off, which often happens with the female body in art and in history, there's that sort of objectification of, of the body, but also of the exotic and the tattoo and the Polynesian or the islander, Samoan. Is there a part of you... I'm just curious about that where there's a big fuss made about the exotic. So do you... Is there something... Is there any part of you that feels um, kind of objectified as an islander person or not? I'm just curious about that. Oh, no, I'm glad you brought it up. I wanted to talk about that. Just because there's that. such a big history, you know. <laughs> there's such a history of, you know, I mean, yeah. I have a Māori background and, you know, there's, a, there's a, such a yes. strong history of mm. artefacts and marais and yes. heads and things being sent all around the world. So I'm interested in how you've sort of objectified yourself and then how you retain ownership. Y yeah, no, it's relevant. Uh, and you can... It is sexualization of the exotic. So... Catchphrase of the day. <laughs> um, it says a lot, you know, as they're saying, um, culturally reappropriated or sexualized for a various audience. As a, I mean, when I was re referencing my first work where it's decapitated, that's like a scientific approach where we try to neutralize it and just make it generic. But at the same time, it's nudity. So again, let's, let's referencing like the Garden of Eden. And the original sin, you know, it's like um, when the when the sailors and the colonizers first arrived, it's like they arrived at the Garden of Eden, it's a paradise, but then there are these naked people running around, and it's like, oh, we need to, but you know, again, that's like um, sexualization of like, okay, you've let your sexual impulses determine a certain response, so yeah, it is part of my theme, and I have deliberately done that, you know, it's like. Um, it's also this obsession with physical body, you know. It's like it's very present through my work and, you know, this obsession of youth and beauty. So that's all coming through the work as well. Actually, there's a video work in there. It's called Lust, and it was made in Berlin 2014, 2015, and it's a reverse. It's, it's a male version of the Dusky Maiden. So let me explain. The Dusky Maiden is an anthropological, ethnographical uh, archetype, sort of generic. And so... And, you know, artists like Paul Gauguin as, as, and again, it's the sexualization of the exotic. And, you know, it makes a lot of sense that, and, I, and like, I was like, why is it always the dusky maiden? It's always women, you know? But it made a lot of sense. It's like the boats that first arrive, it's all males. And when they arrived in the Garden of Eden, the women were free and naked like the fruits in the tree. And they're offered and given and gifted and often they're very, so... That's the birth of the dusky maiden. So all these sailors brought this back, and this is the birth of this first archetype, well, anthropological archetype. And it's you know again, it's the sexualization of the exotic, and it's very female. So I wanted I felt left out. So I wanted to do a, <laughs> I wanted to do a male version of it, you know. And I swear, I swear, it's like there must be a dusky male, you know, a dusky maiden, dusky male. So. But once again, we're referencing um, who's writing the records, and it's, you know, it's like um, history is being written by males. Uh, you know, I had a very nice word, um, the matriarch versus the patriarch. So as far as history goes, patriarchs are writing it, but we know there's a matriarchal history underneath it. So what, what I found in Berlin is like, okay, it's the, it's the epoch of the human zoos. So it's a period where um, before it's like pre-colonial um, domination and it's like a, it's a very strange relationship and it was very, it was an industry that was in today's terms, multi-million dollar industry, entertainment. So they would parade these exotic um, specimens that they found in Africa and Egypt and Asia and, that, and, they, and then as soon as they paraded them in these circuses and zoos, those countries became colonized. So, but what I wanted to say, I found a reference to support my male dusky maiden, dusky male, was that there was a police report in Germany and when the Samoans and other ethnic males came on, and you know, let's imagine you're in Europe, you're completely clothed, it's like uh, you're sexually oppressed. Um, all of a sudden there's a troop of 10 male men specimens, they're completely naked, they're like extremely physical and strong. And it's like, so this police officer's like, we don't understand why these women are behaving this way. They started climbing the fence. They couldn't control themselves. And this was the only reference that I found to it, but it, it proved to me that it did exist. And this lust is an attempt at me of gender 
gender reversing the roles because we I, I mean I do gender gender issues is an issue, is part of uh, the Pacific dialogue and the sexualization of the Pacific and the and the exotic so it was my attempt to reverse the gender what are the um, the historical specific art historical references in that work I just found it in a book yeah. <laughs> in the um, courtesy of Consulat Spetanian and Creative New Zealand where I did the um, visual arts residency 2014-2015 they had a wonderful library and I just took advantage of it but again a reappropriation and reappropriating and as, uh, as a silent protest I'm doing the reverse I'm reappropriating in, in reverse so it is a political statement, very quiet one, you know, not a very overt one, but nonetheless, it's um, it's it's a statement that I'm trying to say. We've got time for one more question there, and it is an opening, so I think we'll have to go. I saw you had a show in Kaohsiung, Taiwan. I was wondering what story was curated there, and how did they respond to it? Uh, Kaohsiung was fantastic. Um, we have to acknowledge the director of that museum at the time, Kaohsiung Museum of Fine Arts. Um, so Kaohsiung is like the Melbourne of Taiwan and Taipei is the Sydney, but not even, not even a good comparison. Uh, once again, um, the, the work that they selected, it was a group show. Um, I forget the title of it, but it was uh, the work that I showed there was the Battle of the Noble Savage. And it was about, um, you know, the colonial resistance. It resonated with the indigenous people of, of Kaohsiung. I mean, let's look at uh, Taiwan is very similar to Australia. 2% of the population is um, indigenous. Uh, Taiwan has been colonized four times in 200 years. It has a very complex and very strong, um, difficult history to deal with. But um, what, they re what resonated with the indigenous ta um, Taiwanese or Formosans, as they like to say, Formosa, but Formosa is Portuguese. So it's like, I mean, it's four colonizers in 200 years, Portuguese, Dutch, Japan, China. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a very difficult, complex conversation to have. People are politically upset about it, but you know what I'm saying? I love these conversations, and art is a great vehicle to have these conversations and provoke and try and evolve their rhetoric. But it was received well, it, it, um, it brought back the tattooing for them, because, uh, okay, so Taiwan had a traditional tattooing process that's been uh, eradicated for the last 100 years. Um, and their one was the woman had the big joker's face. It's really huge one. But um, so yeah, it it it, it kind of like uh, rekindled some fires. Uh, I mean, you could say um, yes, it was well received. Did you go? Did I, you go to Taiwan? It was a three months residency. Oh, it was a residency. Yeah, uh, it was a yes, uh, and I I won the residency and I had a had a very good time I there. Thank you. Appreciate it.